As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 
when a car blew up outside the police headquarters. Well, just uh, a few minutes ago, a car bomb exploded outside the police station here in Russell Street. There was a the sound of one massive explosion. We were sitting in our office, our eyewitness news office, just around the corner. The glass was shattered in the windows of our office. After that, there were several more explosions, the sound of probably fuel in the car exploding. Russell Street was in a complete state of chaos for seconds. Policemen, policewomen were screaming. Everybody was in a state of complete hysteria. Three cars were destroyed in the six explosions. There was massive damage to nearby buildings. That was the 27th of March, 1986, the event that came to be known as the Russell Street bombing, as it was reported that night on Channel 10 Melbourne's Eyewitness News. Regular listeners to Australian True Crime will know it's an event that features in many true crime stories. Our friend and regular guest, former homicide detective Charlie Bazina, narrowly escaped serious injury, or worse, on that day. You'll hear more about that shortly. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. In episode 99 of Australian True Crime, we spoke to retired Chief Inspector Bob Bailey, who was part of the legendary Victorian armed robbery squad in its heyday and was an eyewitness to the Russell Street bombings. He explains the moments just before the first blast like this. I walked up Latrobe Street and turned into Russell Street and there was two parked cars and I saw the Commodore parked across the north door and I've gone, that's a bit strange. And it was bloody eerie because I looked left and right. There was no one. Basically, at that one o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, you would have buses, traffic, people walking everywhere. There was nothing apart from one car that was driving north uh, through the intersection of Latrobe Street and Russell Street towards uh, where I was standing in between the parked cars I'm 12 metres away from the Commodore. And I looked at my watch and I said, I've got an appointment at one o'clock and I'm just about to run across the road. And I thought, no, I'll let this car go through first. And I'm glad I did because I would have been standing beside the Commodore when it went up. You'll notice we've reissued that episode for you this week in case you'd like to know more about the event, because as you'll hear, it's still pretty triggering for this week's guest, the legendary defence lawyer, Bernie Barmer. He's known as Bernie the Attorney in some circles, and make no mistake, the circles Bernie moves in are not for the faint of heart or for bullshit artists. And at no other time is the real integrity behind Bernie's wit and charm more evident than when we broach the topic of the Russell Street bombings. That's coming up soon. But first, he's very famous, some might say infamous, in legal slash criminal circles. Emily and I have been chasing this interview for literally years. But you may not know a lot about Bernie Barmer, and there is a lot to know. So let's allow Bernie to lay on a bit of razzle-dazzle for us, because he's a showman and he loves the courtroom. But thanks to COVID, he hasn't been in a courtroom for two years, so he's really missing it, and that is our great fortune. How long have you been practising? Oh, look, after I got kicked out of school... Did you? Yeah. Apparently you're not allowed to build up Morris Brothers. Mm. Um, I was at Assumption <laughs> at Kilmore. And, the um, irony, because they were allowed to build up everyone. 
Yeah, the well, kids. he ended up getting 14 years with a 10 minimum for historical sex offending, so I don't know whether I dodged a bullet. But, however, um, yeah, it's a, it's been an interesting journey. Having never done Year 12, Yeah. Uh, I worked in a bank for 12 months and got kicked out of that because I wouldn't cut my hair. And then <laughs> uh, I uh, got into a tennis team and met a bloke who was a clerk of courts, a fellow called Alistair Shine. And I thought, that sounds interesting. So I got into the courts and did their three-year course in a year and then walked up to Melbourne Uni. And the sub-dean uh, who passed away recently had a beautiful name for a lawyer called Dick Tracy, Richard Tracy. <laughs> and uh, he took me under his wing. And uh, I've got a bit of a fight background. And I bounced at the champion in Fitzroy for two years and with that money paid a, a barrister, Brian Dennis, to tutor me. And I did law part-time in five years and then, uh, yeah, worked for Legal Aid for five months and then worked for Cody DeWires uh, for six months and went to Griffiths and did the McKay inquest for Gianfranco Tazzoni, um, uh, who was the fella who uh, organised the guns uh, that were used to kill Douglas and Isabel Wilson and the conspiracy on Donald McKay. Mm. Um, and while I was up there, I thought, oh, bugger this, uh, I'm not good with bosses. So uh, I decided to start my own firm, which I did, I think it was the 1st of June, 84. So I've been blazing away ever since. Um, now, can I just, <laughs> just going to have to ask you to stop down for a second, yeah, if you don't mind. Um, could we discuss the client that you just mentioned mm. just briefly? Gianfranco Tazzoni. If you don't mind. He became, look, he became a, uh, a police informer um, yes. and gave evidence at the uh, inquest. And Jimmy Baisley, uh, incidentally, when I was a clerk of courts, I used to go with the visiting magistrate to all of the jails to do what they did call complaints and requests of prisoners mm -hmm. to make sure they're all right, et cetera, et cetera. Darcy Dugan, who was my mentor, uh, the old chief magistrate, whose daughter worked for me for 22 years, uh, he said the only bloke in custody when you do complaints and requests that you ever accept a cup of tea from is Jimmy Baisley. And I said, why? He said, because the others piss in it. Oh, good no. income. So you learn things on the way, don't you? Jimmy Baisley, eh? Yeah. Well, that's nice to know about Jimmy Baisley. But he, we... he recently passed away and um, in the Costigan Royal Commission. Um, uh, Douglas and Isabel Wilson were found uh, in Rye and their dog was alive. And um, at the inquest, he was uh, at the commission, he was asked why he didn't shoot the dog. And he said, Dogs don't talk. Was this the Mr. Asia Syndicate, Doug and Part Isabel it, Wilson? Yeah. 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 If we yeah. can just go back to Tizoni mm. for a minute, though, I mean, that's a pretty hecker's client for a young bloke to take on. Um, and if we can talk about um, Mackay. Uh, about the um, the community that he came out of, yeah, um, and <clears throat> about the the environment, the the marijuana Griffiths, um, yeah. Griffith, mm -hmm. about the marijuana plantations that were springing up up and around there, and the Italian, I mean, the Calabrian mafia yep. was allegedly involved in setting up um, a community and a and an industry there in Griffith. Let's talk about your, I'm going to say, courage in um, getting involved in, in that case. 
How, how did that feel at the time? Oh, look, you don't think about those things. You're, Do you not? No. Because they had a fair sort of, you know, uh, racket in killing blokes who annoyed them. Possibly. Mm. But no, you're just doing your job to the best of your skill and ability. I yeah, mean, but you... if your skill and ability weren't up to it, they'd knock you. Um, well, <laughs> not necessarily. They might probably, they probably wanted to have a look at statements on my file, but uh, didn't get to that. No, no. Were you, were you, were you that oh, confident? What sort of bloke were you oh, as a look, young I, I new dis- lawyer? Were I you... discovered, oh, it's probably a bit wild, but um, <laughs> I discovered uh, during that hearing that the coppers were bent. New South Wales, Wales coppers. So, um, well, they might knock you too. I mean, well, that's that's why I booked a room in Griffiths and flew to Sydney every night and stayed in Sydney. Gosh, so you need some street smarts. Yeah, you do, but also you need a bit of sort of um, you need to love the excitement. You need to be the sort of guy yeah, who's, look, who's don't, loving it a bit. Just don't wear Target t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. So you just got to um, hedge your bets, watch what you say, um, don't mislead courts, um, you know, then you develop a reputation and your clients by and large come to you because they want you to help them. Um, some of them become a bit of an enemy and it's usually because of mental health or drugs. Um, so, this, you know, over the journey, there's been a, a couple have been a bit of a bother, but, you know. You work them out. Yeah, but sometimes when you do a good job for blokes like that, in, yeah. from a community like that in Griffith, sometimes then that can be a bother because sometimes then everyone in the community goes, great, yeah, let's look, make mm, Bernie our guy. Probably with my naivety, I never saw any, <laughs> just didn't think of it. Yeah. Um, I was up there to do a job. Um, Did you end up with other clients from that? No, look, I came back to okay. the firm that I was working with, Katie DeWire, and um, uh left them and started my own show. Um, so it was sort of the catalyst to think that, look, I'm better off starting my own show because, you know, I had this great ability of perhaps not getting on with everybody, Yeah, and particularly I get, uh, authority. I get that, not wanting to have your own boss. That's why I'm sitting yeah. here now, yeah. So, well, so you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you weren't made any offers you couldn't refuse? No. No, in fact, when I left the public service, I had $5,000 superannuation, um, a wife and three kids then, uh, later four, and you're starting your own show. And I can remember in the first month, I earned 157 bucks. And I'm thinking, shit. <laughs> is, <laughs> I know that feeling too. Yeah. You start to think, oh, maybe having a boss wasn't that bad. Yeah. But it was. So I, I rang my... Uh, um, uh, fellow called Bill Sarong who played Collingwood in North Melbourne and uh, who I did my articles with. And he gave me a couple of his old skeleton files and I was over there. I just kick start and I'd get up early and get to the watch house early and being a clerk of course you knew a few of the coppers so get in there, pick up clients. Mm. And it went. Um, <laughs> Roland League was telling us the other day about back in the day when they used to parade the people who were, had been in the watch house overnight yeah. on a stage, literally, <laughs> of a morning so everyone could see who's who, who's in, the who in the zoo. Who's who in the zoo, yeah. That's, um, yeah. 
like a lineup, isn't it? Did you get to take, you know, pick some people off the stage maybe? No, no, <clears throat> no, that, that was probably just a head count to make sure they were all there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, no, it's, uh, no, I, I didn't see that, but you were literally at the door talking to them through a yeah, wire right. mesh door. There was no facilities, standing there with your pad, writing your instructions and mm. going into court and say, yeah, I'm ready, let's go. Mm. Do the best you can. You said, you said you had a fight, a bit of a fight background and that's very um, understating it. Did you pick up some clients from your kind of associations with that world? Because it's, it's really interesting, I yeah, find, that no, you're a look, fighter. You do. And- you do. Uh, and the other thing is when they have, don't come in for appointments and you go to a fight promotion, you say, why haven't you come in for your appointment? <laughs> um, so, yeah, you pick up the odd and still do through the fight family. It's, um, it's a bit of a misunderstood sport. Yeah, because yeah, I believe you also work with, uh, how would I describe it, underprivileged youth yeah. through your fight connections. Yep. And it's, so it's very well known for that as well. Yep. Well, we're not the most popular people at court when you're defending. Yeah. Um, it's, um, yeah, it can be a bit lonely sometimes and it's a competitive industry, mm. but it's a rewarding industry. I'll probably uh, suffer frustration because uh, you don't get your own way rather than anything else. Yeah, I, I can't get... imagine the frustration of it, the work that you put in. Similarly, you know, we talk to uh, homicide detectives a lot. The work, the years of work yeah. you put in and uh, to not get the outcome that you believe you should, I, I just, I reckon I'd do it once in my life and then crack the shit so badly that I'd never do it again. Well, I think I've got 11 uh, murder files on my books at the moment, but wow. because of COVID, you can't get 12 jurors in a room. So oh. the poor buggers are going to sit on remand for three years yeah. before they get a trial. And if you get acquitted, and some will, yeah. not all, um, you'd be mightily pissed off. Yeah. That's right. You've done three yeah. years already. Because yeah. you don't get, it's not like you can get that time back, nope. really. Well, the people on the street don't see that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and people on the, that, that you pass in the street haven't got a tattoo on their forehead. So, well, I'm a thief, I'm a burglar, I'm an ice addict, I'm a murderer. Um, you, can't, you don't pick them. No. Um, speaking of the street, March 27th, 1986. Uh, you and, coincidentally enough, Charlie Bazina. Yeah, he was on... parked behind the bomb car because he'd gone around yeah. the corner to get some camping, camping equipment yeah. for his kids. <laughs> Come back and his bonnet's bent back over the roof of the car and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The Russell Street bombing happened yeah. on that day. And um, yes, thanks be to God, Charlie Bazina survived by virtue of the fact that he was taking his kids camping that weekend and he went to get the camping gear. But where where were you? What happened that day? Oh, look, I was just coming out. Uh, it was one o'clock at lunchtime, so I was just coming out into Russell Street. Um, well, I was a, a bit inside, a bomb went off, and of course, it's all dirt and dust. And so I'm heading out into Russell Street and running to Angela, who was in a pretty poor way. And That's uh, Constable Angela Taylor. Yeah. Um, Magistrate West was down on the left hand side of me. Uh, because he had a thigh injury, I think, and then Donario was down over the road. But there was about five explosions. It was a, a you know, it's a pretty... I didn't know that. Yeah, there was bits of gelic night that just got 
tossed around the street and hadn't gone off. And if, if you ever watch any film, you see a copper walking along and there's another explosion and you see him duck down. Um, so we eventually, well, I took her back in and being a clerk of courts, and I had been two chief magistrates, personal assistant, um, Alec Bale and Kevin O'Connor. And uh, I knew the layout of the court, so I was able to take her to, it was Mick Quirk's office, he was the chief, and I took her so in don't there. Don't move too quickly. You literally picked up and carried Constable Angela Taylor, who had sure. been mortally wounded by yeah. the explosion. Yeah. 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 It's a and you carried her in. T- tough day at the office. Back inside, yeah. Yeah. And you carried her into whose office? Oh, he was the chief. Uh, well, when I was a clerk of courts here, he was the chief's um, chief ma- uh, chief clerk of courts. Mm. And how old were you? Four. Um, in 86, I'm not telling you. No, okay, okay. But you're a young man. Yeah. You're a young man. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Early 30s. Okay. Yep. And um, you just scooped up this young woman while explosions are still happening or? Yeah. The, they're still happening. The residual the... ones were still happening, yeah. yeah. And you've walked out into the middle of that. Yeah. And, and picked up this young woman. Took her back in. And carried yeah. her back in. Yeah. And I'm um, taking her into an office and... Uh, I'm assuming she was not conscious at any stage. Yeah, no, she was she talking. Was. She was talking, mm. yeah. What was she saying? Oh, I asked her her name mm. um, and oh, she, I can recall her and I think it's in my statement, um, she said the bastards. But, you know, the uh, smell, taste and noise still bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, yeah, she just <clears throat> had a lot of clothes. Sorry. No, that's all right. You take your time. So, yeah, I just, um, I rang Triple O and others arrived and then I got evacuated. So, sorry about that. Happens occasionally. There's very few people who've experienced anything like that. I mean, that's literally, you know, police, soldiers, paramedics are the only people. Oh, some, look, some have seen a lot. Hell of a lot worse. No, no, that wasn't my point at all. I was saying that yeah. that's the kind of, that's the ilk of human generally who has seen anything yeah. like that. Well, you sort of, look, you don't think about your own safety. You haven't got time. Oh, no. a lot of people do, Bernie. Yeah. You know, they say there's two kinds of people in this situation, the people running away and the people running to, and you don't find out which one you are until, God forbid, you're in the situation. And so yeah. you found out that you're the running to person, which is pretty extraordinary. Oh, well. She needed help. Mm. Yeah, she did. Yep, and you you gave it to her. Yeah, unfortunately, um, she hasn't had the benefit of a career and a marriage, kids, um, and so on. That's no, sad. she didn't survive. However, I think she last... survived twenty seven days or thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah, but she knew that someone helped her that day. I don't know. Oh, she did because she spoke to you. Well, she did. Oh, she was answering questions. I wanted to know who she was because I'm mm. the uniform blowing off. Uh, mm. um, you know, the smell of nylon and burnt hair and stuff like that. Yeah. It's mm. uh, pretty ordinary. Have you had specific PTSD counselling around? Sure. Yeah. Still do from time to time. Because, you know, there's always a trigger. And, you know, 
those at home probably they're the recipients sometimes of you know if a plate's dropped and it's just your nerves are rocked. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, it's all your own. Mm. How have you managed it? Like getting some help, but how, you know, through your career and raising <clears throat> a family and obviously your sport, because you, you know, you're really involved in the sport, boxing. How have you managed that um, with the PTSD? Well, you don't think about it. You just, um, I'll throw myself in and do it 100%. Um, but yeah, no, you just, look, you do. Um, I'm not going to curl up in a fetal position in the corner and, uh, and, you know, uh, Tony McHugh, the uh, um, psychologist, you know, he's a bit of an expert in post-traumatic, uh, you know, does a lot of the coppers, the soldiers and stuff like that. So I was put on to him and he was, he was very helpful. Mm. Yeah, because we've learned that you need that specific um, PTSD specialist. Don't yeah. You? Yeah. Oh, important. yeah. Yeah. Um, you can't just, you need, you need a plan um, and stuff. So, yeah. But I'm I'm not a total wreck. You certainly are not, no sir. Way. I mean, that's a long time ago now. 86, yeah. And look, sadly, come every 10 years anniversary, you know, that. Yeah. And, and I didn't talk about it for 10 years. And Ian Johnson, then Channel 9, talked me into doing it 10-year doco. Uh-huh. That's when I got a bit sooky la-la about it because <laughs> um, I'd bottled it pretty well, just like, my dad, who'd fought overseas for three years in the Middle East, mm. they were taught to come back and not talk about yeah. it, yep. which is probably dumb in many ways. There's a, there's a lot of soldiers shipwrecks out there or police shipwrecks out there. Yeah, well, a lot of them came home and became alcoholics, didn't they, from mm. from World War yeah. Two and from Vietnam, very common. Well, do you know that we're saying about being an alcoholic? What? You're always thirsty. <laughs> yeah. 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 My mum's grandpa was um, came back from World War One and never spoke about it. Had a bullet in a jar from where he shot at Gallip- uh, like I think it was Gallipoli, and yeah, just never spoke about it. Yeah, ever. Dad was the same. I eventually coaxed him into um, marching on Anzac Day. Oh, really? We were from Broadford, yeah. So the last uh, say nine years of his life, we uh, he went to his reunion and I organised his battalion to, after the march, meet at the Emerald Hotel in South Melbourne. Yeah. Lewis family are very generous in that way. So yeah, it's good fun. Gosh, family's very, very important to you, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. You've got a lovely big family, like you yourself, lots of kids, lots of grandkids. That's, that's great. I'm envious, very envious. Yeah. It's, um, well, it's no fun swimming by yourself. It sure isn't. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In episode 17 of Australian True Crime, we spoke to Doug O'Loughlin, a retired member of the Special Operations Group. Doug was at Russell Street on the day of the explosions and he went on to lead the operation to arrest fugitive brothers Craig and Rodney Minogue for the crime. Craig Minogue, Peter Kamarzik and Stanley Taylor were convicted of the bombing. Kamarzik, known also as Peter Reid, was later acquitted. Stanley Taylor died in jail of natural causes in 2016 and Craig Minogue continues to serve time in Barwon Prison. Craig's brother Rodney was acquitted of being an accessory to the crime. But in 2020, he was sentenced to a jail term of three years and six months in Albury District Court after pleading guilty to a series of home invasions and burglaries. That court heard that Rodney Minogue was deeply affected upon hearing in 2019 that his brother Craig and Peter Kamazig would stand trial for the alleged abduction and rape of two women in the 1980s. One of those attacks was alleged to have happened the day before the bombing of Russell Street Police Headquarters. And the Melbourne Magistrates Court heard that the 19-year-old victim was inside the Russell Street building giving a statement to police at the time of the bombing. There are many suppression orders around this case as it's still before the courts, but Rodney Minogue's defence counsel in Albury told that court that upon hearing of his brother's rape charges, Rodney relapsed into methamphetamine addiction. At sentencing, Judge Sean Grant said that in their youth, Craig Minogue had inflicted on Rodney the expectation that he too would follow a life of crime, that Rodney had had a front row seat to Craig's ways, including witnessing, as a boy, Craig dismembering a human body in the kitchen at their home. We've reissued episode 17 of Australian True Crime as well, in case you'd like to hear more about the arrest of Craig and Rodney Minogue after the Russell Street bombing. What about those cases that you've worked on that have got a lot of media coverage? Gee, where do you start? I know, that's what I'm saying. You're one of these guys. Your career is so huge. It's like we don't yeah. even know where to start um, with you. Oh, look, what... You know, that's the things, some things that really impact you, like I, I represented a, 
a lady who got charged with attempted murder of her father and um, injured him badly when he was in bed. She got locked up, got her out on bail. I was driving, and she, she lived near where I lived at the time. I was driving her home, and uh, I said, uh, your father's rooting you, isn't she? Isn't he? Yep. Mm-hmm. It got writ- I think it got written up a new idea or Women's Day or something like that, the story. Anyway, moving along, we're able to resolve the case to a um, recklessly caused serious injury. The father survived. But during that process, um, we discovered that the um, mum and sister had left the family environment and went to live interstate. And um, Duncan Allen, who's now a county court judge, he he was the barrister appearing. And uh, after we came out of court, I saw the mum and the um, sister walking up uh, William Street. So I chased them, reunited them. It was, um, yeah, it was really, it was, they're, they're emotional things, but uh, yeah, it was A, a good result for her, um, and B, t- to relink her with mum and sister was, mm. was interesting. That reminds me. Because I didn't know what mum and sister were going to say. No. Mm. But I thought I'd give it a go. Did they, they, did they know? They would have known, surely. Well, I didn't know. Well, they would have known after sitting through the court yeah, case. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, yeah. And I, that reminds me of a question I have about the court system. Um, look, it's controversial, um, it, but it's about the gender biases in the system. And I think they probably exist for good reasons and the stats back them up, but it's troubling. I, I realise my bias is that when I hear um, that a woman has killed a man in a situation like that, what my first thought is, oh, he must have deserved it, to be honest with you. And I never, ever, ever would think that about a man killing a woman. Yeah. There can always be a button pusher. You know? Like, just, yeah, it's just, um, I feel. Look, there's, realize... there's, there's many instances of unfairness in, yeah. in law. When I realised oh. that about myself, I thought, oh, that's really crook, yeah. isn't it? I assume he's an abuser. I'm, I assume he's an asshole. I assume she's finally yeah. stood up for herself and good on her. What a champion. You must love the fight because it seems to me that the, you, you can't be the sort of person who, who loves the outcome <laughs> because too often the outcome's crazy, frustrating, wrong. So you must enjoy mm. the battle, do you? I'm married. I'm still fighting. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the fighting court too. I mean, you you must enjoy the battle, the matching wits, the... Yeah. yeah. Well, you're, rather than fighting with your fists, yeah. you're fighting with your mouth. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's, um, but it's similar strategies sometimes. And yeah. the sad part about not being able to go to court now is you, you can't pick the body language of your judge. Yeah. Or, you don't whether, know whether someone's in a room nodding or shaking their head with a witness or... That yeah. would be exciting. That's what we all, when we watch a great court drama, yeah. that's what we all get off on, isn't it? And we go, oh, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. Yeah, yeah I want to do lot, that. A lot of people want to sit down and talk to you. Yeah. Bernie, can I ask you about um, 
a case that I found really interesting and actually so heartbreaking. So I did, was doing a bit of Googling on you, going back in the files, and there was a case in 2000, I believe, and you, you defended a woman called Julia Setti. Yeah. And it's like the most tragic case. She actually um, killed her child. Um, but the circumstances around that, it, it was – nothing more than a tragedy. And I just thought um, reading about that, I thought you, you've obviously got such a heart for people with trauma and, you know, difficulties. Can you tell us about that case? Because I, I actually hadn't heard of it. I think I was living overseas at the oh, time. Right. It's, um, Julie's a lovely lady. Um, it was, sadly, she, uh, from a strict Italian family, had a child out of wedlock, um, strict Italian family were very Catholic, um, mm. so they weren't very approving of a child out of wedlock. Uh, the child was put up for adoption. Um, the prospective adoptive parents uh, tried to integrate Julie into the family cocoon and uh, there was Julie with suffering issues. Um, and in the end, because of... Uh, Disagreements with authority, adoption agencies, um, uh, the Justice Department, for example. Um, she flipped and uh, unfortunately the kid passed away because of her actions and was uh, taken to New South Wales and that's why the uh, case was in Sydney because there was no jurisdiction in Victoria. Just over the border, wasn't it, where yeah. it happened? Yeah. So... Uh, fortunately, we were able to uh, present her uh, and point out all these issues, and uh, we had a very good judge with lots of empathy who saw the issues and gave her an opportunity to stay in the community, and she got a, um, some help, and yeah, I hope she's living a happy life now. I think it's that feeling that the system is set up to benefit the offender, mm. because really what that comes <clears> back <throat> to is the lack of support for victims. Family, yeah, you know. yeah. I think that's getting better, though. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I think yeah, from what we've observed. Yeah. But if it's your first time in the system, which for most victims' families it is, they're shocked. They're con constantly shocked that they're not offered counselling. They're not. Yeah. They're not. They just don't feel supported in a way that they assume they would be. And then they find out that. Oh, the offender's getting all this counselling. The offender's yeah. getting all this support, and they feel like that's just crazy. But they don't get any education really mm. when they're in there. Mm. Um, you know, they meet like-minded people, and they come out with better skills. And um, you know, the lack of education in the in the system is, to my liking, bad. Mm. I heard. I heard you say. Um, that really, if you're doing any more than five years, it's like you lose your life. Yeah, yeah. And I, can you talk a bit more about that? Because I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, look, I, I just I, I, the experience that um, I had of people who've done a really long sentence, they don't ever readjust. I mean, they come out. I saw one who did twelve years recently. I got off the tram, and he's walking around uh, with his phone. Mm on Google Maps, mm. and I, I, I used to see him at the fights. I said, hey, mate, what are you doing? He said, I can't effing find my way around. He said, it's all changed. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, 
that they, they go home. Uh, they've been in a green tracksuit for 12 years. You know, are they fat or are they skinny? I mean, they've got no clothes, often no pots and pans to cook. So can't, they can't think... budget. On, on benefits. You or... know how they, they used to, I don't know if they still do, but they, they always used to tuck everything in all the time. You'd see mm. blokes who'd been in jail a long time. Remember Chopper used to always meticulously tuck his T-shirt into his jeans and he was forever pulling his socks up. You know old blokes who'd been in jail a long yeah. time. You could see him a mile away. Everything's mm. tucked in. Yeah. Well, he was a long time client of mine. <laughs> Chop. Yep. Mm. Michelle's got a well-known fascination with Chopper, haven't you, Michelle? Well, yeah, I just used to do you know, run into him around showbiz circles, yeah. as you would know, Bernie. Yeah. And I love his wife, little Margaret. I love how little Margaret talks about, I'm trying to get her to come on this show, but she's funny, but I love how she talks about him. It's so beautiful. And she still talks about him in the present tense. He is the love of my life. And um, how she talks about Mark, obviously, she never calls him Chopper. He was quite a funny fellow, but he was very unpredictable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's... Uh, I first met him when I was a clerk of courts. Um, you did complaints and requests of prisoners, which I might have mentioned earlier, but um, he cut himself open and he was lying on the floor in H Division and they were trying to get ambulances and stuff in there because his intestines were about to flow out. And he <laughs> rolled over and started doing push-ups. <laughs> you go, wow. But I, I first uh, represented him, uh, the Zayat murder at, at Bojangles. Oh, yeah. We, we ended up having a falling out. And um, after many years, Peter Morris from Channel 7 rang me and said, uh, Chopper wants your help. Uh, I said, well, I don't take apologies by proxy. Mm -hmm. um, so he got Chopper to ring me and I said, what do you want? He said, uh, the New South Wales Homicide Squad were coming down to speak to him about the fella he shot in the taxi in um, mm. Tasmania had disappeared off the face of the earth and they wanted to talk to him about it. So we're in the interview room at Ho Homicide uh, down here in St Kilda Road and uh, they were asking all of the questions out of the um, underbelly books. Oh. You know? <laughs> and I, I said, look, hang on, hang on. You're not, this is not getting advanced anywhere. And Chopper just said, let him go. And I thought, I wonder why he's doing this. And then I thought, I know why he's doing it. Another book. Another yeah. <laughs> so uh, we had a bit of a laugh about that afterwards. But yeah. Uh, yeah, he's, he wasn't a dummy. Uh, oh, no. You know, to have a career offending against other uh, offenders mm. on the basis that he thought that they wouldn't go and report him to police. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, you know, some of the most interesting people, uh, you know, like Linus Driscoll, the, uh, who got extradited as well, but uh, he um, he was head of the toe cutter gang in the great bookie robbery. Mm. They used to go around and say, uh, okay, where's the money? And if they didn't pay up, they'd get the tin snips out and start cutting their toes off. Um, but the thing about Chopper that fascinates me really, and more so since I've spoken a lot to Margaret, is that he fits so perfectly the profile that we know now um, in that, he spent the first five years of his life away from his mum. He spent that in a, uh, an orphanage because of his <laughs> mum's debilitating postnatal depression. And then, you know, uh, after that, he entered primary school with, because his brain development was delayed because of that. 
we know now that that happens when you have that separation anxiety from that early age. He entered primary school and had learning difficulties, probably ADHD. Yeah. Um, and so he's never caught up. He's teased. The name Chopper was actually a nickname that came from teasing and he agreed to kind of adopt it in a, in a way to try and fit in, which is heartbreaking to me. And the older he got, the more behind he got at school. It, it's textbook. It's classic. He went to a boy's home. He went to Tirana Boys Home and other boys' homes. I think he was in Gosford at some stage, Boys Home, which is a notorious boys' home for physical abuse and sexual abuse. Um, and statistically, I think it's something like, what, 48% of boys who've followed that trajectory, even today, end up as adults in prison. Yeah. So as much as Chopper Reed, in inverted commas, is a subject of whatever, you know. And the peer group didn't help. That's what I mean. I mean, yeah. and that, but that today is. It's interesting that you started off talking about the five years. Of course. Mm. I mean, to me, that's a story that, that we never talk about with Chopper because we're so immersed in the kind yeah. of comic character yeah. that he created very cleverly. Um, there's such it's a tragedy. A, there's such rigid control when you're in jail, you know, you're yes. locked up at three, you know, you get up at six, breakfast. And for so many people, it's routine. the first time in their lives they've had that structure. Yeah. But when they come out and they haven't got that structure, yeah. they, they get a little bit confused about what they're supposed to do at certain times. That's quite common, isn't it, in your profession, I, um, drugs and alcohol? Surely there's- Predominantly there's... alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. I was so- Damn, I always thought snorting cocaine was a heavyweight boxer. <laughs> <laughs> Self-medicating is obviously pretty rife because yeah. it's a stressful industry. Yeah. And, you know, and there's PTSD with or without being involved in a major <clears throat> uh, bombing like you have been. I mean, the things, just the material that you're required to view and, uh, and analyse every oh, day. Oh, murder, murder photos, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, yeah, I'm not surprised that self-medication is rife. Doctor told me to keep my fluids up. <laughs> <laughs> do you think the family court, which is a shit show, do you think it contributes to violence in our culture? Oh, you wouldn't just, I wouldn't just isolate family court. Mm. Um, it, it just gets back to uh, the facilities that, you know, DHS have. Yeah, um, yep. you know, if they yep. just haven't got enough, enough people, enough money, and enough courses to, yep. yeah, and you know, it's all band aid stuff. Their caseloads are too huge, you know, and people then start to fall through the cracks. And then some families don't want people visiting them and mm. saying, "Look, you've got to have supervised visits with your kids and stuff like that," and they object to it. Yep. They think they're up to scratch. And, you know, there's people on Prozac and Ligactyl for mental health things and they begin to feel all right, so they go off their medication and, of course, the spiral starts again. Yeah. I mean, how do you help them? And I, I think it was Jeff Kennedy who closed the uh, yep. mental institutions and yeah. put them out into the street where they don't get their depot shots uh, when they should and yeah. so on. So, yeah, I mean, it's easy to point. But again, anyway. you know, there's no votes in preventative measures. In New no. South Wales, I read a study um, 
or I read a study conducted in New South Wales that said that simply um, housing uh, people suffering from schizophrenia together in, in an environment would, they projected, you know, lower crime rates by fantastic statistic only because um, so many people suffering schizophrenia end up homeless yeah. from not taking medication. And then that leads to oftentimes crimes against them and, you yeah. know, just lots of lots of issues. But getting so. back to your point earlier that, you know, you have a, an issue sometimes with sentencing, but if you, if you have a look at the overall picture, I don't know whether uh, – about four or five years ago, of all of the um, – all of the – Criminal cases dealt with by the county court, um, 0.08% were appealed to the full court of the Supreme Court, either by defence or prosecution. And of that, of that 0.08, 0.02 were overturned, but they don't tell you the judge is getting it right 99% of the yeah. time. And it's sexual yeah, assault They demonise them. It's specifically sexual assault is the, is the one that always upsets me. I, you know, I, I always think that, you know, you're a rapist, you don't. You don't understand how to. Yeah, and look, they're extremely hard to defend because of the legislation. All of it's hard. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand that. It's it's they're hard to convict, and it's all difficult. Um, but that's the one that upsets me specifically. And you see, even if they're convicted, six years, over and over and over again for for raping people. You know, so that's just a particular pet peeve of mine. How many How many years do you think they should get? The rest of their fucking life, because they don't understand. That's what I think. But you can't lock someone up for the rest of their life. You can. You actually can. In very, 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 very small number of cases. Uh, because why should you let them out? Or like, will we nominate one of your daughters as the person they get when they get out? Because um, they get one of us. Yeah, I don't think they'd get to trial. But, mm. but this is my mm. point. You got someone like Peter Dupas or someone like that. That's saying to him, after enough times, this is a man who rapes someone every time he gets out from the age of fifteen. Okay, you can, you can have another one <clears throat> in six years. In fact, you can probably have another four because what what will happen is when you get out, you'll rape one, and we'll catch you. And then in the time you're waiting to go to trial, you'll go and rape another couple in the Dunnies at Rosebud, wherever. So you'll get another. You can have another four in six Doesn't that years. come back to the point about education when they're in there? You can't, you're not going to educate Peter Dupas or, or any of these. No, but you're, you're broad brushing the whole, um, the whole lot, uh, situation. Yeah, because I'm a woman. You're not going to get raped, Bernie. I might. Men, men get raped. Very rarely. How do you know? Because I can read the stats and I do read yeah, them but they constantly. Might, the victim mightn't complain. You know for a fact, Bernie Barber, I've done, I've that done, I'm more likely to I've get raped I've done male rape cases. I know you have. Ha however. You I, know I'm more likely I, to I get raped I think you're broad brushing it. I, think, I mean, just, just to have a – we live in a civilised society. You can't just say, okay. It's a lot more civilised from where you're sitting than it is from where I'm sitting. You can walk home tonight in well, the dark alone and I cannot. I'll ask you a question. Have you been a victim? Yes, I have. Okay, well, I can understand the way you think. And 80% of women have. Do you reckon it's that high? Yeah, fucking oath I do. Yeah, of at least some form of sexual assault. I reckon you're broad brushing it. Come on. You can walk home tonight in the dark and I cannot. Well, who's to say someone's not going to stab and rob me? I'm going to say it's statistically unlikely. 
statistically much more likely that I will be attacked in some way. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't agree with you. Oh, come on, Bernie. You know the stats. I don't, I don't agree with you. You know the stats. They just are what they are. No, I don't agree with you. I mean, I think there's definitely where people should not be let out ever. And I feel like some of the people in jail for life, that's the right decision. Like Leslie yeah. Camilleri. I don't if know. A rapist, if a rapist is, gets, gets another one in six years, then are you going to pick which one he get, who he gets? Who can he have? Do you reckon you'd ever retire? You seem to still be getting a real buzz out of your work. Look, 95% of the time, I mean, you're dealing with people's problems on a daily basis. It wears you down yeah. from time to time. Uh, 95% of the time, I love what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah. Will I retire? Yeah, probably not. No. I don't imagine you would. I reckon you'd be a real pain around the house if you did. Oh, huge. <laughs> yeah, bored. Huge. I mean, look, and, you know, working the hours that I uh, used to work, uh, I've got a daughter who works with me now. I've got oh, nine employees. Great. What does she do? Is she going to be? Is she a lawyer? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, great. she uh, she went through bond and she's been out about eight plus years now. Wow. Oh great. She's got four kids. Is she any good? Yeah, super. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, she's got four kids. Her husband's a barrister. Oh. Um, all in criminal law. All my kids work for me over the years on reception, you know, part time and so on. So. Yeah. They've got a good feel for what Daz does. Um, one of them got a bit scared during the gangland killings that for my safety, but. Um, oh, who did you rep? Mick, Mick Gatto? Uh, I, I started to represent Mick, but um, that I didn't go on with it in the end. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I had uh, two others that I had to give away because one of them turned police evidence. Yeah, so. Uh, it was sort of good to get out of it, really. I was thinking I'd want to work for your factory. I was listening to you and yeah. I thought, maybe it's not too late for me to do a law degree. <laughs> maybe I could do like articles with Bernie when I'm like 50, or I'm 45, when I'm like 50 or 51. You are one of Am those, I too old? Yeah, hey. you are one of those people who makes you want to. Yeah, I was like, cool. I graduated with a fellow who was 72. Oh, there's hope. I love Cedric because he used to come up to the uni and he'd bring his tea bag and he'd have his bickies. When he went up to get the hot water, I used to eat his bickies. Poor <laughs> <laughs> Cedric. Oh, my God. But he had two sons who were barristers. And oh, yeah, he, he did, uh, I think it was commerce at Melbourne University back in the 50s. Mm. And then he ran Phillips Radio, then retired. And he got sick of his kids pulling ranks saying, look, I've got a law degree. What were you now? Yeah. So he went and did law. That's pretty, it's pretty impressive. It is, you can do that stuff and, though now, And the great you? thing was that at the graduation ceremony, being Zahara Zed, you don't clap until the last person gets there oh. conferred with their degree. And of course, he got it yeah, Cedric. Yeah. When you go back into the court, I'm going to come and watch you. Um, we've got to get you back again, please. Yeah, yeah. I knew yeah. this would happen. We've wanted to talk to you for ages. Yeah, I really want to come and watch you perform. Thank you to Bernie Barmer. His legal firm, by the way, is Barmer and Associates, and I highly recommend if ever you're in need of defence counsel. Thanks to the following patrons Dylan Vandenboss, Marla Kavanagh, Rebecca Adams, Andrew Turner, Rachel Hoare, and Sally Dowd. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.